Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. You are listening to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we're pleased to join Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. I'm really looking forward to uh, the topic of discussion today as we delve a little further into the Christian background of the founding generation. And uh, who will we be talking about today? Let's look at James Madison today. We sometimes call Madison the father of the Constitution. And that being the case, we call his mentor the grandfather of the Constitution or the father of the father of the Constitution. You know, last week we talked about the Reverend John Witherspoon, this Scottish Presbyterian preacher who came to America to become president of the Log College, which became known as the College of New Jersey, which has changed its name to something like Princeton today. And there, as president of this little college, he had only about 18 students in each graduating class. And yet out of the years that he was there, he trained a lot of famous people. In fact, nine out of the 55 delegates to the Constitutional Convention, that is about one out of every six, was a graduate of the College of New Jersey and had studied under the Reverend Witherspoon. And probably none of these was more prominent than the man we're going to look at today, James Madison, a man we often consider to be the father of the Constitution. As we think about James Madison, I'd like to cite a passage of scripture that I think is particularly appropriate for looking at his life. And I'm going to be reading from the Webster Bible. That is the Bible by Noah Webster. Webster was, of course, a tremendous scholar in the history of the English language. He could talk about the Middle English period, the Anglo-Saxon background of certain words and so on. But he also knew Greek and Hebrew. And his notes are particularly fascinating as we look to his translation. Essentially, he started with the King James. And so he didn't change too much from the King James. But when there was a reason to change something or explain something with a note, he did so. But here's what the book of Psalms has to say, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16, very appropriate for James Madison. Wherewith shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to it, according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With thy lips have I declared all the judgments of my mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies, as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts, and have respect to thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. And if I were reading from the scriptures in church Sunday morning, I would add, this is the word of the Lord. And indeed it is. But let's look at this man, James Madison. William Pierce, who was from Georgia, and a fellow delegate to the Constitutional Convention, described Madison from his observation 
during those several months at the convention, saying that Mr. Madison is a character who has long been in public life. But what is very remarkable, every person seems to acknowledge his greatness. Let me just pause for a moment. One of the things that may be surprising that they would acknowledge Madison's greatness is that Madison was the youngest delegate to the convention. But he continues, he blends together the profound politician with the scholar. In the management of every great question, he evidently took the lead in the convention, and though he cannot be called an orator, he is a most agreeable, eloquent, and convincing speaker. From a spirit of industry and application, which he possesses in a most eminent degree, he always comes forward the best informed man of any point in debate. There's a good model for all of us to think about. We may or may not be eloquent. We may or may not be that smart. But we can all do our homework. And we can all be the best informed person in the debate. The affairs of the United States, he perhaps has the most correct knowledge of of any man in the Union. He has been twice a member of Congress, was always thought one of the ablest members that ever sat in that council. Mr. Madison is about 37 years of age. He was actually 36. A gentleman of great modesty with a remarkably sweet temper. He is easy and unreserved among his acquaintances and has a most agreeable style of conversation. He spoke 161 times during the convention, next to Governor Morris, who spoke the most frequently, and James Wilson, the second most. He spoke the third most frequently of any delegate at the convention, and not only did he speak frequently, but his comments were always very substantive, directly to the point, and very influential. He had authored what we call the Virginia Resolves. This was a series of propositions that the Virginia delegates suggested that maybe these should be considered at the convention. They actually drafted these when they were waiting for the other delegates from the other states to show up. They didn't all come right when they were supposed to. And when the other delegates came and saw the Virginia Resolves, they basically made these the agenda for the convention. He was also the author of Madison's notes. He took careful notes of the convention, of who spoke and what they said and so on, and each particular day, what motions were made, what votes were taken, how those votes came out. And Madison's notes are probably the best information we have as to what went on at the convention. Now, several other delegates had made notes as well, but not nearly as extensive as Madison's, but Madison's notes give us the best information as to what went on at the convention. And only one other source could probably be called more authoritative and more influential, at least, in determining what the intent of the framers was, that being the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers, which were written by Alexander Hamilton and John Jay and James Madison, these three together wrote this series of essays that we know as the Federalist Papers. But while they are not as long and they're not as authoritative as Madison's notes, they actually are more influential than Madison's notes. The reason I say this is there was an agreement among the delegates that all of their notes would remain secret until 
the last delegate to the convention had died. And the last delegate to the convention to die was Madison. He died in 1836 at the age of 85. And by that time, some of the leading constitutional decisions like Marbury versus Madison and McCulloch versus Maryland, and some of these others that set the direction for the constitutional history of the United States, many of these decisions had already been made by the court well before Madison's notes were ever released. Nevertheless, they are a treasure trove of information as to what actually happened at the convention itself. Madison went on to become the Secretary of State under Jefferson. I should say before that, he was elected to the Congress in the 1789, that is the first Congress. And there, among other things, he introduced the Bill of Rights, of which he was one of the two or three primary authors. But Secretary of State under Jefferson, and then elected president in 1809 and served until well, elected in 1808 and served from 1809 to 1817 and was also a legislator and served in other capacities as well, lived on to 1836 and as an elder statesman for the nation, continued to make important contributions. Now, when we look to his early life, Madison was born in 1851. He was the first of 10 children, and very often, if you look to order of birth, the oldest sometimes becomes a leader. But in the family, his father was an Episcopal vestryman, and his mother was a very pious member of the church as well. They lived in Virginia, and they were a slave-holding family. And so he grew up among slaves. In fact, slave children were his first playmates. And there he looked at his parents' library, learned to read at an early age. And in their library, some of the formative influences on his life were there. The Bible, the Book of Common Prayer, other Christian books. He started school at age 12, although he already knew how to read and other things at that time. His instructors were Thomas Martin, a pastor, and the Scotsman Donald Robertson, whom he said, all that I have been in life, I owe largely to that man. and mounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Zippy and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you want to do what's best for them, to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I would seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. 
It's John and Chelsea Jubilee. And today we have a message for you women out there. Are you premenopausal, postmenopausal, or maybe you're in the middle of menopause right now? Ouch! Listen, we have thousands of clients that have reported reversing all of their symptoms of menopause. Or maybe you have thyroid imbalances. Same thing for those women. Listen, this is your time. Absolutely. You can reverse all of those symptoms and you can be your real joyful, exuberant, and lean self again. Ladies, I don't care if six doctors told you you can't lose that fat after menopause or in menopause. You can. We have done it hundreds and hundreds of times, even in a medical setting, documented. So make your action call today. Log on to EnergizeHealth.com, EnergizeHealth.com. Or call 888-444-8895. That's 888-444-8895. The following are real-life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call, and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors, and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are learning a little bit more about the founding generation, particularly the Christian background. And today we're talking about James Madison. And I have to say, Colonel, um, I thought he was an impressive guy before, but what you're spelling out for me makes him even more impressive. Well, let's talk some more about Madison as he grows up. In the 70s, of course, the 1770s, Americans are thinking about independence, and one of his instructors, Mr. Pastor Martin, was very much pro-American independence. Likewise, James Madison's father, as I say, he was an Episcopal vestryman. He also was a strong supporter of American independence. And in 1769, when Madison was 18, he was sent by his parents to college at this little school that we call the College of New Jersey. Now, it is interesting that his parents, who are Anglicans, send him to a Presbyterian college. But Presbyterian is what College of New Jersey was, what Witherspoon was. And the college was known, first of all, for its very orthodox, conservative theology. Second, that it was a very strongly pro-independence college. Not all of the colleges in America were pro-independence, but the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton, was. It is interesting, by the way, when you talk about Princeton, that when you look to the Ivy League colleges, most of these were founded as very strong church-related schools, teaching the Word of God, 
And a primary purpose of most of these colleges was to train ministers of the gospel. And as we move into the 1800s and into the 1900s, these colleges and universities, the Ivy League as we call them, one by one, they fall prey to religious liberalism and political liberalism that goes with it. Interestingly enough, the last of these to fall to liberalism was Princeton. Princeton remained a center of orthodoxy well into the middle of the 1900s, and there are a few conservatives left there at Princeton even today. But there at Princeton, Madison studied and graduated, but he stayed for a semester after graduation because he was still very much thinking about ministry as a profession, and he stayed primarily to study Hebrew. And he could read the Hebrew laws in the original language. Afterward, he engaged in a great deal of very extensive Bible study, and it's interesting to look at his notes that we see from shortly after he graduated, where you read things like Acts chapter 19, Holy Ghost, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? The apostle does not mean in its sanctifying operations, but in its miraculous gifts. On to Matthew chapter 1st, where we say Jesus is an Hebrew name and signifies Savior, verse 1. Christ is a Greek name and signifies anointed, verse 2. And anyway, so much more in those notes that show a very strong interest in what the Bible has to say and in theology. And he had a strong interest in becoming a preacher. Now, one thing that we don't really know for sure is why he chose to go into law and government instead of into ministry. On August 12th, 1773, he wrote to a close friend of his by the name of Bradford that, could I think myself properly qualified for the ministry, I should be at no loss what choice to make as I have always borne in mind that I was born for others as well as for myself, I have always been desirous of being in that station in which I could be of most use to my fellow creature. And in my opinion, a divine, that is a pastor, may be the most useful as well as the most happy member of society. And he doesn't ever explain why he decided he wasn't suited for that. Some think it's because he was a man of small stature, of frail health and with a very soft speaking voice. And you wonder, why is that a hindrance to going into the pastoral ministry? Well, you remember at that time we didn't have microphones. And in fact, we think about preachers like George Whitfield with the Great Awakening that we spoke about last week. And Whitfield speaking to crowds sometimes in the tens of thousands without a microphone and outside competing with the wind and whatever else might be going on. So a strong voice was definitely an asset in the ministry, but do you think it would also be something of an asset in law as well? Well, Madison's friend Bradford had decided on law, but Madison advised him, keep the ministry obliquely in view, whatever your profession be. And Apparently, Bradford had written to him and said, don't tell me I should become a pastor. I decided that's not where I want to be. Madison wrote, you forbid any recommendation of divinity, that is, ministry, by suggesting that you have 
insuperable objections. Therefore, I can only condole with the church on the loss of such a fine genius and persuasive orator. I cannot, however, suppress this much of my advice on the head that you would always keep the ministry obliquely in view, whatever your profession would be. I have sometimes thought there could not be a stronger testimony in favor of religion or against temporal enjoyments, even the most rational and manly, than for men who occupy the most honorable and gainful departments and are rising in reputation and wealth publicly to declare their unsatisfactoriness by becoming fervent advocates of the cause of Christ. And I wish you may give in your evidence in this way. Anyway, so we see that Madison is a strong friend of the ministry, a strong supporter of the church, even though he chose not to go into the ministry. Now, after he goes into public life, we find that Madison is less explicit about his Christian faith than he had been before. But he never repudiates it, and possibly because he felt that when he was in a public position like this, and was representing people of many different faiths, he had a duty to be neutral on issues that might divide Christians, although he never hesitated to express his faith in God itself. We could say that his views were probably summarized in maybe about 10 different points that I think are very clear as to what he believed about government, First, he believed that all power is from the people, although the people, of course, ultimately get their power from God. Secondly, he believed that government is by a social compact, or a covenant, shall we call it, and that government has only such power as we, the people, give to government in that social contract. And, of course, our social contract is the Constitution, and... The idea of government by social contract is an idea that he probably derived largely from John Locke. Jefferson and others would hold those views as well. He believes strongly that all human government is subject to a higher law, the laws of nature and of nature's God, as Jefferson put it in the Declaration. This is a view that he might have derived from Sir William Blackstone, although it could come from other sources as well. He believed, human nature being what it is, that government needs to have separation of powers as well as checks and balances among those branches, just like we have in our government. We talked about those as we went through the articles of the Constitution, that the Congress passes laws, the president can veto those laws, there's a check, Congress can override that veto, the role of the courts, and so on. So the idea of Separation of powers and checks and balances is one that he held very strongly. Another view was that the multiplicity of interests in the United States, that we weren't a majority of farmers or a majority of lawyers, a majority of northerners, majority of southerners, the multiplicity of interests would mean that these interests would check each other, and so none would become dominant, and each could keep government in check. Let's continue after the break.
once again, we welcome you back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And once again, here's Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Fascinating information about uh, James Madison, as always, Colonel. Hey, we've seen some of the things that Madison believed, power from the people, that government is by social contract, the government has only the power we the people give it, that government is subject to higher law, the laws of nature and of nature's God, that government is to be separated into legislative, executive, and judicial branches, the checks and balances, that the various multiplicity of interests in society will check each other so that no one becomes too powerful. And one thing that all of these others might be summarized in is a belief in moderation in all things. That's the way he lived. And it's also his philosophy. In fact, some think that maybe Madison was as radical as Jefferson, but or that Jefferson had radicalized Madison, but it's more likely that Madison was a moderating influence on Jefferson. And we find, for example, at the convention that Madison is kind of in the middle between those who want more power for the federal government, like Hamilton, and those who want less power, and that afterward, he is a supporter of the Constitution. But as we move into the Federalist and Anti-Federalist groups that the nation is divided into in the 1790s, Madison, although he had been a Federalist, meaning a supporter of the Constitution, now he becomes a Democratic Republican, that is a supporter of Jefferson, but nevertheless, probably quite a bit more moderate in his views than Jefferson would be. Somewhere in between Hamilton and Jefferson is where we probably put James Madison. As far as slavery was concerned, Madison, again, had a moderate view on slavery. In fact, at one point, Madison declared the whole Bible is against slavery, but the clergy do not preach this, and the people do not see it. Now, he's probably writing out of Virginia, where the clergy would not be speaking against this so much, and if you go into New England and Pennsylvania and other places, they would be speaking against it more. And yet, despite his opposition to slavery and saying the whole Bible is against it, he owned over 100 slaves throughout his lifetime, not 100 all at one time. And he freed a few of these, but he did not free the majority of them. And he believed that because of the condition of society at that time, that just simply freeing slaves would not work because they would have no way of supporting themselves. It'd be kind of like taking, let's say, livestock and letting them loose. They'd have no way of living. And so he determined that there should be repatriation of slaves to Africa. He was head of the colonization society at one point, but he didn't feel like they could be immediately freed. He felt that that would have to take place on a gradual basis. It would have to be by both the consent of the master and the consent of the slaves. But he was noted for his kind treatment of his slaves. Paul Jennings was a former slave who was born and raised on Madison's estate, and he wrote of Madison, Mr. Madison, I think, was one of the best men that ever lived. I never saw him in a passion. I never knew him to strike a slave, although 
he had over 100, neither would he allow an overseer to do it. Whenever any slaves reported to him as stealing or cutting up badly, he would send for them and admonish them privately and never mortify them by doing so before others. They generally served him very faithfully. I don't think he drank a quart of brandy in his whole life. For the last 15 years of his life, he drank no wine at all. And anyway, so a moderate on other things and a moderate on the view of slavery as well. But there's one thing that you'd probably have to say that he wasn't a moderate on, he was a very zealous advocate of, and that is religious liberty. Very strong advocate of religious liberty. And some of this comes from his early youth. And he describes on one occasion how he, as a schoolboy coming home from school, would go past the jail. And at that time, you had to be ordained and approved by the Church of England in order to preach in Virginia. In some of the other states, that wasn't true, but that was true in Virginia. And he noted that there were Baptist pastors who were in the jail and were there in the jail for preaching. And as he writes about this, he said that he was amazed that they were being jailed simply for preaching their convictions, which he said were in the main very orthodox. I find it interesting that Madison knows what orthodoxy is and that he thinks orthodoxy is significant enough to merit mention. Well, as he grew into adult life, he continued to be a strong advocate of religious liberty. And in fact, there were three that fought together for religious liberty. Actually, I should say four. George Mason deserves to be considered part of that group as well. But I'm thinking particularly of Madison and Jefferson, and then another, Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry had had a similar experience when he was a young lawyer. He was in Spotsylvania County where he arrived to try a case, and he was sitting in the back of the court waiting for his case to come up. And as he came in, there was a trial going on of two Baptist preachers who were being charged with having preached without a license from the Church of England. Henry stood up and said, Your Honor, do I understand that these men are being charged with preaching the gospel of the Son of God? And when informed that that was, yes, that's what was going on, he asked to join the defense and participated in their defense. They were convicted because, frankly, the law was against them, but he paid their fines for them and urged them to keep on doing what you're doing and contact me if you have any more trouble. Well, anyway, so these three were strong advocates of religious freedom. But at one point, it came that they were divided. There was a bill, they had previously strongly opposed a law that provided a tax that everybody had to pay that went to the support of the pastors of the Church of England. They all agreed that was a bad law that needed to be ended. But when it was ended, then there was another law that was proposed and this one would provide the same tax, but this would go to the support of all Christian preachers. Madison and Jefferson opposed that. Henry supported it. Henry said, so long as it's going to all Christian preachers equally, that's perfectly fine. I see no problem with that. But Madison opposed it. And 
twice because Henry was such a powerful orator. He was able to defeat them in the legislature and, and get it through. But under Virginia law at the time, any bill for a tax had to pass the legislature in three successive sessions. By the third session, Henry had been elected governor, and with him out of the legislature, Madison and Jefferson were able to get the bill defeated at that point. But it is really interesting to see what Madison's objections were. Some say that, well, obviously he objected because he wasn't a Christian. But if you read what we call his memorial and remonstrance, and then his notes from the debates and the things that he said on the House floor on this, you can see that, no, his objection was based on some entirely different reasons entirely. First of all, he said, the Christian religion, we believe, is of divine origin. And therefore, it does not need the aid of the state. I don't know what he'd say today if he saw the state many times actively fighting against the Christian religion. But he said the Christian religion doesn't need the aid of the state because it is of divine origin. And therefore, it's the true religion. Secondly, he said, anywhere you see the church and the state united, the church becomes corrupt, and the people become apathetic, and it fails. It flourishes in freedom. And third, he said, if the church, if the bill says that support is supposed to go to all Christian pastors, then the state is going to have to define who is a Christian pastor. And the state has neither the competence nor the jurisdiction to do that. For example, he asks, are Catholics Christian? And many in Virginia at that time would have said, no, they aren't. Are Quakers Christian? And again, probably most in Virginia would say, no, they're not Christians. Are Socinians, that is, Unitarians Christian? And many would say, absolutely not. And so Madison is saying, the state is going to have to define who is and who is not a Christian. If we pass this bill, the state has neither the jurisdiction nor the competence to do that, and therefore this is a bad bill. And on the third reading in the third session, the bill was ultimately defeated. A lot of Christians probably objected on to that, but I think we can see the wisdom of what Madison was saying. of nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. You guys, your customer service and everything, you guys are great. And the commercials talk about it, but I don't know if it really gives it true justice. People need to know, this is maybe the most amazing product I've ever tried. It's so pure, it tastes so good, I'm just blown away by it. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code 
USA. At the American Veterinary Medical Association annual convention in Washington, D.C., I spoke with Dr. John Howe, AVMA president, about One Health. One Health is really a collaboration between physicians and veterinarians or public health officials. For example, in Minnesota, our state public health veterinarian deals with zoonotic diseases, rabies, for example. Animals are sentinels for humans, and humans are sentinels for some infections in animals. There's more valuable information at AVMA. Awesome and amazing day, friends. It's John and Chelsea Jubilee with Energized Health. You've been hearing our messages for a while. You've heard Wayne Allen Root and his extraordinary testimony of what's been going on. And women, if you have a husband that is struggling or needs a loving nudge, I encourage you to nudge him off the couch and go check out our masterclass on our website, including the amazing testimonials. And these testimonials are just real people. They're not famous or high-level production. This is real people, people talking on their iPhone, people sitting across from their spouse. They share their real story for the past 23 years tens of thousands of people reversing arthritis diabetes high blood pressure neck pain back pain migraine headaches brain fog lots of challenging things be a beautiful beloved skeptic and come check us out at energizedhealth.com that's energizedhealth.com As a follower of Christ, you are created and called for greatness, now more than ever before. In his powerful sequel to the bestseller, Kingdom Man, Tony Evans' Kingdom Men Rising calls men to break free of apathetic faith, to take a stand, do more than just exist. You have been called to rise up and influence those around you. Discover how when you get Kingdom Men Rising and learn the art of intentional impact. New from Tony Evans, sponsored by The Urban Alternative. With a Democratic sweep officially in place, we are now at the mercy of tax and spend economics. Get ready for runaway national debt pushing the further devaluation of the dollar. So if you haven't invested in gold, now is the time to protect your savings. Birch Gold Group is the premier precious metals IRA company in America. With an A-plus BBB rating and thousands of satisfied customers, Birch Gold can help you move an eligible IRA or 401k into an IRA backed by gold. Go to birchgold.com radio for your free information kit. That's birchgold.com radio. And we are back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as as you have explained more about uh, James Madison's background and his thinking, uh, my admiration for this guy just continues to grow. Only if, if, If only we could have leaders like him right now. Wouldn't it be great to get to know a man like that, just to sit and talk with him, maybe have a class under him or a lecture series from him? I guess the best we can do is just read about him and read about others like him and just try to take what their thoughts were and share them with this generation. That's what I know you and Loving Liberty are trying to do, and that's what I'm trying to do here as well. But obviously we don't measure up to those men, but hopefully we can take some of their wisdom and we can dispel it. And when we talk about these men of wisdom, it certainly is not just these that we're talking about here. It seems like at this time, in the 1770s and 80s, there in the United States, that quite a convergence of very wise men came together. In fact, 
Thomas Jefferson was not at the Constitutional Convention. He was in France serving as ambassador in France. But when he learned the names of the delegates of the convention, he said, it is really an assembly of demigods, not demagogues, but demigods, that is, people who are almost gods. And he said, a more able assembly has never sat on the North American continent. And if he were alive today, I think Jefferson would probably say that statement is still true. But anyway, as I say, Jefferson was not there. But knowing that Madison was going to the convention, Jefferson was sent to Madison, not from, I guess he must have ordered to be sent from his home there in Virginia, but sent to Madison a whole collection of some of his books on constitutional law and on the making of constitutions, governments and things. And so Madison thoroughly read over the books that Jefferson had before coming to the convention. And for those who say that he was the best informed man on every subject, very possibly that's in part because of his education, but in part because of the wisdom that Jefferson had shared with him. Although, as I say, Madison was probably a moderating influence on Jefferson. Now, after the Constitution was ratified, then it went, or was adopted by Congress, then it went to the states to be ratified. And during the ratification debates, Madison joined with Alexander Hamilton and the later Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay, for writing the Federalist Papers, a group of essays that were published in newspapers to support Constitution and urge the farmers of colonial America to support ratification. And anyway, those are, of course, very influential. But when the Constitution was ratified, then he was elected to Congress. And there in that first Congress in 1789, he was the primary author of the Bill of Rights. Part of the reason for this was during the ratification debates in Virginia, where Madison and many of his colleagues were fighting for ratification, but they were up against Patrick Henry, who opposed the Constitution, and George Mason and several others. The night before the vote, Madison and the others promised that if the Constitution is ratified, we will immediately go to work on a Bill of Rights. And he was true to his word. He did so. And so there, after taking some 350 different amendments that various states had proposed, many of which were duplications of others, then he reduced them to 12 amendments, which he presented to Congress. And of course, 10 of those were ratified as the Bill of Rights. But the first of these was an amendment for religious liberty. And it's significant because we recognize that our liberties come from God. And so Madison makes that the first. And actually, it was the third. The first two were not ratified. So the ones that are ratified, it is the first. But here is the way the amendment read as he introduced it on the floor of the House on June 7th, 1787. It reads, the civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship, nor shall any national religion be established, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any manner, nor on any pretext infringed. 
not quite the same wording as we have in the First Amendment today, but the basic ideas are there. Now, one of the unfortunate things is that in that first Congress, we don't have a verbatim transcript of the things that were said. In subsequent Congresses, we do that first. All we have is what's called Floyd's summary, which helps, but it's incomplete. But someone on the floor asked Madison what he meant by an establishment of religion. And according to Floyd's summary, here's what he answered. Mr. Madison said he apprehended the meanings of the words to be that Congress should not establish a religion, a italicized, and enforce the legal observation of it by law, nor compel men to worship God in any manner contrary to their conscience. Whether the words were necessary or not, he did not mean to say, but they had been required by some of the state conventions, some states that ratified the Constitution, who seemed to entertain an opinion that under the clause of the Constitution, which gave power to make laws necessary and proper to carry into execution the Constitution, the laws under it, enable them to make laws of such nature that might infringe the rights of conscience and establish a national religion. And Madison is insisting that we are adopting the First Amendment just to quell that fear and to ensure that that will never be the case, that people's conscience will not be infringed. Now, as I say, the language was changed somewhat, and probably the most significant of all of the changes here is that that phrase that Madison uses here about liberty of conscience or full and equal rights of conscience is changed to free exercise of religion. Now, why the words are changed, we don't really know. As I say, I wish we had the transcript from that first Congress to know. But my guess, and I think this makes a great deal of sense, is that they changed freedom of conscience to free exercise of religion because they wanted to make very clear that not only did this protect your right to believe, but it protected your right to act on those beliefs as well. And liberty of conscience back at this time was originally thought to include the right to act on your beliefs, but I think they wanted to make that just very clear. And when you think about it, it is important that we protect religious actions as well as religious beliefs. You know, if all religious freedom is, is the right to believe, there is perfect religious freedom today in North Korea, in Iran, in every country on the face of the earth. You can believe whatever you want. And so long as you don't say anything about it or do anything about it, you're going to be fine. And that will always be true until they invent a machine that can read your thoughts. But I think the framers wanted to make very clear that liberty of conscience includes the exercise of religion as well as the right to believe. Now, Madison was not the advocate of the radical separation of church and state that some have suggested, that some have said that he opposed that we have national days of prayer and so on, and some things that Madison writes in a later time and what was found years after his death, a document that is referred to as the detached memoranda. In this document, he says that he thinks that having national days of prayer may be a violation of the First Amendment. But what's really important 
is not what he said in the 1830s. What's really important is what he said back in the 1780s, at the time the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were being adopted. And in that same Congress, where Madison proposed and we adopted the Bill of Rights, Madison also served on a committee to establish congressional chaplains and advocated the adoption of congressional chaplains and also issued calls for daily prayer at that time, or for prayer at that time. So the point of the matter is Madison's actions at that time clearly show that he did not mean by the First Amendment the radical separation that it has been interpreted to mean more recently. John Quincy Adams eulogized him after his death in 1836. The youngest delegate of the convention, the last to die, age 85. Is it not a preeminent degree by emanations from his mind that we are assembled here as the representatives of the people and the states of this union? Is it not transcendentally by his exertions that we address each other here by the enduring appellations of countrymen and fellow citizens? Indeed, Adams is right. We owe much of this to James Madison.